The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. I'm Mike Merrill, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I had a chance to speak with Michael Bonfiglio about the new HBO documentary he co-directed with Judd Apatow, George Carlin's American Dream. When I asked Michael if he could sum up the documentary for us, here's what he said. It's the story of a great American artist through his evolutions as a person and a performer and creator of art. And it's also an exploration of how this one particular artist reflected his times and his culture and how that reflected back on him. I think that really gets the heart of the documentary's central theme. George Carlin was not just a great comedian, but an important artist of our times. This film does a wonderful job of charting the transformations that Carlin underwent as he pursued his art for about half a century. We see the straight Carlin, I guess you'd call him, of the early 60s in suit and short hair, what I have to admit I knew next to nothing about. And then we see him transform into the Carlin we know best from the late 60s and 70s with the longer hair and the more personal and edgy material. And then it may be the film's most impressive depiction, the Carlin of the 80s and 90s, one that I frankly, and as we learned for the film, I was not alone, thought of as being just too dark, too misanthropic, too preachy. The film does a really great job of reclaiming this Carlin, especially the work that falls between the, say, early 80s and just before the final years of his life. And throughout Apatow and Bonfiglio and their team, we've the key world events with an American focus that shaped these changes. As I note in the pod, Michael's resume as a director and producer is deep and it is wide. You may know him from films as varied as Some Kind of Monster, Paradise Lost 3, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, but in recent years, he has turned to environmental concerns in films like Paris to Pittsburgh and From the Ashes. Michael has also directed episodes of David Letterman's My Next Guest Needs No Introduction and Oprah's Masterclass. In addition to a nod for the series itself and for Michael and Judd's direction, George Carlin's American Dream received Emmy nominations for film and sound editing and sound mixing. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod. And you can also catch us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. And now, my conversation with Michael Bonfiglio about his new documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. Michael, why do you make documentary films? I think it's a way of processing the world around me. I like having the license to ask people questions that would seem nosy or intrusive in a normal situation. I like organizing the world into understandable stories. I like being able to have the license to go out into the world and explore it through the veneer of the camera. I also don't really know how to do anything else, so I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what else I would do. We'd love to talk about openings. You start with a late career Carlin. I'm gonna guess he's well into his 60s here. He does a bit which maybe 
is a little bit too simple a term for these later pieces, but it's about rights. And I'm going to go a little bit in detail here. You really lay out a lot of the themes of the film here, I think. He's saying rights. Everyone's claiming them, but they're imaginary. We made them up. And I apologize for sucking all the humor out of this, folks. And he goes to say, if you believe they come from God, you sort of have to explain then why do we amend the Bill of Rights 17 times? Sounds more like America, one group trying to control another group. Can you explain why you wanted to start here? Well, I think it's provocative. The aesthetic reason is that we had access to these outtakes of HBO promos that Carlin had cut, and it was right near the end of his life. That particular piece boils down a lot of the philosophies or ideas that he arrived upon throughout his career. We liked how he was just addressing the camera directly, you know, seeing him in the last version of himself that anyone saw. That stuff was actually initially recorded just a few months before his death. It was right before his final special. It was a promotion for his final special. It was a little bit of a grabber for the audience in addition to the larger ideas that you said that it does reflect. It is an encapsulation of his worldview, certainly in terms of the country. This movie will make a case, I think, for the later Carlin being very important. And maybe we ignore that Carlin at our own risk. And also, I think it's interesting because you are picking a bit where he's going after both sides, both the left and the right claim rights and also accuse the other side of trying to oppress them. Yeah. And he did that frequently. I mean, he would never really allow himself to be claimed by any group. And that includes politics. If you look at his positions on most things, you would conclude that he was a Democrat and a very progressive one. And that's true. Yet he also sometimes defied specific categorization. His views were complex, sometimes contradictory. It's absolutely safe to say that he was very progressive liberal, but he also despised orthodoxy from any angle, even if he agreed with the politics of the speaker. So he was a complex thinker and his philosophies are difficult and his ideas are difficult to pin in one particular box. He was very staunchly opposed to groups and group thinking. Yes. And we'll get into that. And then after this introduction, we go into part one. And again, we have a little bit of another interesting start. We see a young Carlin coming onto his, probably his first appearance or an early appearance on the Tonight Show. We hear Johnny's voice. We don't see Johnny. And then he starts the bit in a way which is very surprising to me. He says, there's two kinds of comedy. The old comedy, what we call the Borscht Belt comedy, and the new comedy. New stand-up of Lenny Bruce, Mort Sahl, sketch with Nichols and May. You spell that out a little bit. What an interesting way to start his first bit, you know, this analysis of comedy. Yeah, I mean, I think it, in that piece, he was really, I think, looking for a way into doing his impressions. Because at that time, he was an impressionist, which is a weird thing to think about George Carlin. It's not something we uh, generally associate with him, but he started out doing that. He did that as a kid. He would impersonate Mae West and other famous people, and he would impersonate the priests and nuns at his school. But he was an impressionist at a time when there were a lot of impressionists in those days. We don't have them as much anymore. And he was very good at it. He was a talented mimic and impressionist. And being so meta there, is, it's cool to see in that era. I don't know if he was particularly trying to be meta. Maybe he was. Or if he was just looking for a good in to do his impressions of contemporary comedians. Yeah. And once you hear these impressions that he does a great Jackie Mason right next to Jackie Mason, yeah. one yeah. of your clips, once you hear it, you begin to hear it in his routines from later on as well. But this is really great. You show this young Carlin, short hair, no beard, really handsome guy. 
it, it opens up this door to a Carlin many of us will not have known. There's this 10 years of Carlin before he becomes the Carlin we know that you really explore. Can you talk a bit about the overall structure? For the most part, after these introductions, it's a pretty conventional, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, chronological, cradle-to-grave treatment of Carlin's life. And you do some interesting things to mix that up. So we see a lot of the older Carlin commenting on the younger Carlin. Could you talk about why you chose that kind of standard approach? I think it was because we had so much ground to cover. Judd and I, neither of us are filmmakers who are really looking to, certainly never to be gimmicky. Not that an, a, an unconventional structure is gimmicky. We didn't want to risk, I don't know, maybe having any of the information be difficult to take in, you know, because there's a lot of it. It's a fairly dense film and we do go through Carlin's entire life. And yeah, we had the luxury of, you know, two parts and almost four hours, but it's also a 71 year rich life and a ton of material that we wanted to be sure to include. We did talk about, should we just go with a fairly straightforward chronological approach and then have the sort of more, quote unquote, creative storytelling techniques augment that and come in at different times. But from the beginning, we thought probably a straightforward chronological approach is the best one for this. And people can find fault with that. But I do think that it's a fairly easy to consume film. And there's a lot of ideas and things in it. And there's a lot of layers to it that I personally think that the chronological structure helps bring those ideas out. I think it works very well. And you start, you dig into his childhood in Morningside Heights, which is on the far upper west side of Manhattan. You trace a lot of kind of the tributaries that would go into his later life, the verbal fluency from his parents, the rejection of authority, the dreams of becoming Danny Kaye, the tension between being a loner and being an entertainer of crowds. We could discuss a lot of these and we probably will as we move along, but can we talk about the rejection of authority? It pinpoints at this moment that many of us who grew up as Catholic altar boys will recognize, which is he felt the church betrayed them. He told them after the first communion, he would feel like he's in God's grace, but he doesn't. And he really turns against at least organized religion. I think that it's a great moment. And what makes it even more complex and I think more telling of his just deep inherent character is that his Catholic school experience, it's the 1940s, and it was not what one would think of as a Catholic school experience in the 1940s. He went to a school called Corpus Christi that was staffed by nuns, but it was a very progressive school. It was not the incredibly strict discipline and the nuns hitting the kids with the rulers. It was none of those cliches. It was the opposite of it, in fact. It was a place that afforded him a great deal of encouragement of his creativity and of all of his skills. And so when he has that moment at his first communion that is supposed to be this magical almost moment. And I, you know, as somebody who also grew up Catholic, was an altar boy, I went to Catholic school for elementary school, all that stuff. I can relate to that. It's like, wait, I don't feel that thing that I'm being told I should be feeling. And he saw that as a deep betrayal, everything that was being told to him. And if you think about, you know, first communion, it's like second grade, third grade. So he's young. He's very young when he has this moment of realization that they're lying to me, that this is all bullshit. It's a very, very formative moment for him. He never wavers on that point. Just a quick note here, as you said, you have incredible archival material. Some of his early recordings here are really interesting. He has one where he's narrating the effects of the first atomic bomb. Yeah. It's a wonderful bomb and it can blow up the whole world, he says. And I was like, yeah. wow, that is Carlin in its trenchant, sardonic tone and also its focus on the absurdity. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it's early on. I mean, that recording, he's nine years old, 10 years old. He's a kid. And he already has this kind of darkly comedic view of the world. Now, can a kid understand what the atomic bomb is? I don't know, but he could certainly understand the threat of it. Seeing in the newspapers, the destruction at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's so interesting to hear a young kid making jokes about something like that in the way that he's doing it. So yeah, it was a really exciting recording to be able to include. Carlin's first kind of job is, is as a DJ. Great job for him. He's that wonderful voice. He finds Jack Burns doing news. They met in Boston and they head out to LA and they start a comedy duo doing, I believe, coffee houses in LA. They're mocking TV ads, doing DJ voices. I don't really know what comedy was like. This is like 1960-ish. But to me, it really felt like they were anticipating some of like maybe Monty Python, the credibility gap, SCTV. I thought it was really interesting that they were this early to that approach. Yeah, I mean, that kind of material has, you know, I, I think Carlin was influenced by Fred Allen, who was, you know, on the radio in, in the 40s, very uh, cynical, sardonic views on culture and advertising and things. But, you know, it's 1960 when Burns and Carlin formed and were performing it was a time of change in comedy in that you had these new voices like Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul, as you mentioned, Nichols and May, Jonathan Winters, who were doing edgier, more challenging material as opposed to basically repurposed vaudevillian kind of stuff. It was comedy that was more personal, that was being written by the performers. Comedy was in a state of evolution. And George and Jack Burns were right there at the beginning of it. Carlin worshipped Lenny Bruce. One of my favorite things about that early material is that they're figuring out who they are. They love this edgy stuff and they're having some success with it, but it's still a struggle. And the nightclub audiences, someone didn't want to hear edgier things. This issue continues into Carlin's early solo years as well, but you can hear them poking at the edges of what's edgy and what they can get away with. The routine about the junior junkie kid, it's like a fake kids show saying, telling kids to send away for their junior, I forget, Captain Jack's junior junkie kit. It's edgy, but they do want mainstream success. George always really wanted mainstream success. And they're trying to figure out who they are and what they have to say. And once they break up, I think Jack goes the improv route and mm -hmm. Carlin decides to hit the road as a stand-up. He meets his future wife, Brenda, right. and they're an amazingly attractive young couple. Their resulting marriage, it's supportive and loving, but other times it can be combative and even terrifying for their young child, Kelly, especially as they fall into their own addiction, hers and alcohol, his and cocaine. Can you talk about the importance of this relationship to Carlin? It was critical. I mean, I think that Carlin was a person, he didn't have a lot of people in his life who he was close with, but the people who he was close with were really key figures in his life. And I think that he was somebody who wanted, and he said this himself, how he craved approval and approbation and attention and all these things that Brenda provided for him. She was a cheerleader for him. She supported him. She supported his dreams and his goals. And she stood by him when they're crisscrossing the country in a Dodge Dart, going from gig to gig, you know, having to borrow money from her parents, his mother, just to make ends meet. And they have a little baby with them very soon. And Brenda is right there with him, encouraging him, believing in him. I think that was really key, was that he had somebody who he loved, who really believed in him, his in his talents and his abilities to make it. 
And I think that was something that played heavily into his ultimate success was that he had that support system there and largely comprised of Brenda on her own. Carlin wanted to be in movies like Danny Kaye. And so he was on TV. He was on everything on TV. And one of the pleasures of this is seeing this kind of tour of 60s and 70s TV, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas. And amazingly, both he and Richard Pryor were on a John Davidson variety show. And for those who don't know Mr. Davidson, he's this sort of post-Pat Boone avatar of milk-fed wholesomeness. They appear in this kind of matching sweater outfits. I, I, can you just talk about this and how indicative this is of this tidal wave of change? You can just feel it's going to come and just sweep over this world. Yeah, those clips are amazing with Pryor and Carlin together, both doing material that is not at all what we would think of them doing. But that was the way to get on TV then. You know, variety shows, television in general was very, quote unquote, wholesome. It did not push boundaries. It existed to sell soap and automobiles. And it was not TV the way we think of it now, but that was what was available. And so if you wanted to be on TV, you had to do those kinds of shows because that's what there was. It's fascinating to see the two of them there on this very milk toast variety show. Carlin was on that show for years. He was a writer on it and prior appeared multiple times. It's just what show business was. And George wanted to be in show business. You mentioned the Danny Kaye thing. One anecdote that we just didn't have room for in the film, George worshipped Danny Kaye and wanted to be just like him. And when he was a kid, he actually met Danny Kaye at a stage door in New York, asked him for his autograph. And Danny Kaye, who is actually known for not being a particularly nice guy, essentially told him to get lost. And that was another moment, like his first communion, where George said, oh, they're lying to me. I have this image of Danny Kaye as this wonderful guy, and he's a jerk. And that was a, another seminal moment for George. The George Carlin we see in the early 60s and the one we know from the 70s, how that happens is interesting. Carlin points to his use of mescaline and acid, and then he began to see that he was stuck in the middle. I think he's in his early 30s at this point, entertaining 40-year-olds while they were sending their 20-year-olds to die in the war. And you illustrate this by showing these battles. This is where as you were saying, the intersection with actual culture is happening. You show the battles over civil rights in Vietnam in the streets. Can you talk about how you constructed this really important transitional moment? There are a number of sequences in the film that are during moments of George's transformations. He had quite a few. And that is his first major transformation is when he went from the suit and tie, clean cut variety show guy to the counterculture comic. As you said, he talked about being really caught smack dab between these two generations. There was the baby boomers who at the time were, the, they are the people who comprised the counterculture. He was not a baby boomer. He was born in 37, you know, so he's about 10 years older than the kids who are marching in the streets against Vietnam for civil rights and all of the socio-political upheaval that happened throughout the 60s. He's a bit older, but he's not as old as those people's parents. And he decides to pick a side, essentially. And by growing his hair out and getting rid of the suit and exchanging it for a tie-dye t-shirt and doing material that was more provocative, that was more personal, not necessarily about himself and his life personal, but his ideas and opinions and thoughts on things, that transformation was enormous. At the time that George grows his hair out, the Beatles had already broken up. So it wasn't like the idea of having long hair was some 
Yet at the same time, it was, particularly for somebody who was a comedian. And you know, he was still doing variety shows just only as a stand-up. He was doing The Tonight Show, not exactly a variety show, but he took a stand with where he stood and his appearance reflected that. And it was a big deal. It's interesting, Patton Oswalt, and I will say your talking heads, you have a lot of contemporary comedians. Your talking heads here are excellent. They're always interesting and insightful. Sometimes in documentaries, you can feel like someone's there just because they're famous. You don't do that. He says something yeah. really interesting that in fact, that George in a tux or suit was a persona that he put on and that this was a really revelation of who he truly was, that he de-transformed himself, which I think is a lovely way of putting it. Yeah, he articulated that so beautifully. Carlin, he has this great gig at the Frontier Hotel in Vegas. He's making a lot of money. And he basically decides he's got to stand up. And you kind of get the sense he got himself fired by saying shit on the stage. Brenda says, hey, I'll write up your press release and let's go to the coffee houses and college campuses where people are open to experiment. And I have to say, this is one of those moments in the film where it rang a little funny today, right? We hear comedians complaining that college campuses are the last place where you can experiment with language and so forth. And Carlin was, you talked more about how he's against the orthodoxy of the left and the right, especially around language. Did you think at all about that and having a conversation about where college campuses are now and where experiment and change happens today? Not really. We never specifically talked about that. Other than the one montage toward the end of the film, we really tried to refrain from speculating about what George would say or think about anything that happened after his lifetime. We didn't really want the film to dive into the debate over what you can and cannot say, quote unquote, on college campuses. It just wasn't of particular interest to us. I think that the, you know, the deeper questions of pushing boundaries and the power of language and our changing relationships with it and our abilities to evolve culturally versus to me, I think Carlin's transformation that we just talked about when he goes from being suit and tie guy to counterculture guy was a moment where he's recognizing the culture evolves and we have to evolve with it. So specifically what he would say today about today's debates in terms of what cannot be said on college campuses, I don't know. I think he would be far more concerned with don't say gay laws and people burning books, you know, than he would over audiences becoming perhaps more sensitive or having the outlets through social media to express their dislike of somebody's act. Speaking of this, I think a lot of times we think of Carlin, his content, I can remember doing his, you know, some version of his bits on the schoolyard, but a lot of it is presentation. It's interesting. In uh, the early 70s, he begins to get into records, which is another way we all learned about him, I think. And another revelation of this is that Flip Wilson was his record label impresario, never knew that. Let's talk a little bit about his presentation. A very simple one is this bit he had about oxymorons and paradoxes, which focuses a bit about jumbo shrimp. And Yes, as Bill Barr notes, the way he modulates his voice and the range of the dynamics is really interesting, but also he uses his whole body, thrusts his head forward and he, he raises his brow and he rolls his eyes and it's just this incredible presentation. I can't even think of anybody who does as many kind of visual tricks with his face today. Can you talk a bit about that? You have these great close-ups of him from there that are just- Yeah, really I mean, he was a ham, self-avowed ham, and he loved to perform. And I think that his- long trajectory in show business and learning performance from the early days of television and from the work he was doing in nightclubs in the 60s and you know his work on the radio he had to learn how to perform 
in different ways than I think performers learn today. He never lost any of those skills that he learned along the way. And he was able to take some of those voice modulation techniques and skills that he built up way back in his radio days and bring those into his act later on. I'm glad you're bringing it up because it is a, a sort of under-discussed and underappreciated part of Carlin is his performance. But at the beginning of our conversation, when you were talking about the piece that opens the film about rights, and, and you said something like, I'm going to kill all the comedy out of this. And it's true that sometimes, you know, if you just read a transcript of a Carlin piece, it's not funny at all. And then when he performs it, it's like the incredulousness in his voice, the expressions on his face make it very funny. So he was a full body performer while also being a writer and just a brilliant intellect. He also was not afraid to do a silly voice or move in funny ways in order to get his laugh. And I think that's one of the unique things about him as a comic. We know from a young age, Carlin smoked weed. He probably would have said, pot or grass or reefer, but I got to say weed or my kids will mock me. And he mentions hallucinogenics as being an aid to his breakthrough. But it seems like during this period, in the 70s, cocaine becomes the drug of choice. And I really get the sense of it kind of playing in two scenes. One is when he's on David Frost, he's talking about the hypocrisy of drugs and he does an impersonation of a, a housewife stimulated and sped up. His yeah. leg is jiggling. I, I got the sense there was some drug enhancement of his own presentation. That really works there. But then there's this other one where we talk about the seven dirty words or the seven words you can't say on television. It seems like it's a hot night and sweating, but there's a real current of anger. I wonder about how cocaine affected his presentation. There are a lot of times when you just look at him and listen to him and you can tell he's gacked out. He did have a tremendous capacity to handle a large amounts of drugs. He claimed that all of his TV appearances all throughout the 60s on those straight shows that he was high on pot, not on cocaine at that time. But I think he was a person who could function fairly well on drugs, like much better than most of us could. But yeah, the cocaine was, I think it was unbalanced. It was certainly a negative thing in his life. It probably contributed to his dying at the age that he died at because of all of his heart problems. And it certainly had a huge impact on his daughter's life. And it created a lot of chaos and just madness in their home. You also look at something like a list of 500 dirty words that he would make, you know, and it's like, well, maybe he had to be on cocaine to come up with all of that. I think cocaine certainly did not have a, a good impact on his life. I think he survived those years with his body not fully intact. Carla has his great success in the early 70s, but even by the late 70s, he seems a bit dated and he experiences this. You show Robin Williams is taking countercultural comedy to this new level. Others like Steve Martin and Andy Kaufman are going kind of meta, I'd argue. And you even show this brutal takedown by Rick Moranis on SCTV, which I yeah. had forgotten. Wow. Um, yeah, so the, funny, though. It, it was very sure. good. Yeah. He imitates him quite well. Another kind of revelation here was Sam Kinison. And, and I remember the first time I saw Sam Kinison and was blown away. Those of you who don't know who he is, if you're easily offended, do not go watch his videos. But otherwise, you should. Can you talk about what was the attraction to Kinison? I think Carlin was always conscious of what other people were doing. He was competitive and he was always conscious of making sure that he evolved with the culture. He did not want to be irrelevant. He didn't want to be dismissed. And I think that when he saw things like that 
Rick Moranis impression on SCTV. You know, I mean, that CTV was the smartest, funniest thing going. And that hurt him. I mean, he spoke about that, about how that was really rough for him to see. And it lit a fire under him to figure out how he could remain relevant and what he wanted to say and what he felt like he needed to say. And at the same time, you know, he also, there's a scene in part two of the film after he has his heart attack, where he talks about how our culture is built around like, you know, more, better, faster, no time to reflect, no time to regroup. And that's unhealthy. And that's not what life should be about. That's not a healthy society. But he also, he was competitive and he wanted to make sure that he not only was successful in terms of his level of fame and fortune, but in terms of his relevance. And so I think he saw Kinnison and Kinnison's presentation and his anger and most importantly, his ideas were very appealing to Carlin and scared him a little bit and made him say, oh, I don't want to get lost in this guy's dust. How do I keep my voice strong and important and relevant and have people listen to the things I have to say? And here we are. It's about 1979, 1980, and part one ends. This is another kind of interesting choice on your part. Uh, You spend the second part of the series on the Carlin of the 80s and the 90s. There's an implicit argument here that this is an important part of Carlin's legacy. Absolutely. I mean, I think every portion of his career and his work is important. The stuff in the late 70s where he's kind of doubling down on the wordplay and there aren't really new ideas coming to bear. And in the early 80s where he's kind of, it's not that material is bad. It hasn't aged particularly well, not that it's like problematic, but more that it's just like, oh, well, that seems kind of old and hacky. At the time, it probably didn't seem hacky, but it just seemed kind of toothless, maybe is the word. But it's all important in terms of his evolution. He's always taking where he's been and applying it to where he's going. We often talked about his career as almost, you know, like a musician, even your favorite band, you don't love every album. There are phases and periods, you know, with the painters, Picasso's blue period or, you know, Carlin goes through a number of different versions of himself and different versions of who he is as an artist, a lot like a band would. And some things resonate stronger and some things resonate stronger with some people and less so with other people. And some things are just undeniable classics. The other thing you do in the second part, and I think you hinted at some of this was because of the availability of the material, but you slow way down and you show longer sequences. For example, you show, I think, pretty much the entirety of the, again, bit is probably not the right word, the planet isn't going anywhere. We are. I think this is a great example of, of later Carlin at his peak, the rhythm, the drive, his voice is taken on this gravelly newness. But I have to say the core message of this particular piece, I find in today's context, at least a bit misguided. And I want to say that your resume is wide and deep for our discussion today. People may know your work as a director and producer in things like Some Kind of Monster and the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, both excellent documentaries I recommend everyone go see. But I also know that in recent years, you have done some serious work around environmental destruction, around climate change. Could you talk about the choosing to focus on this particular piece? It's almost, I'll say it, it's almost like he's attacking you in this piece. I, I'm glad you bring it up. I love that piece because it takes the audience on a ride that you can hear if you listen to that piece in the film, and it's just really pulled straight from that special. It's a 92 jamming in New York. It's from that special. You hear 
the audience react when he starts off in this very and you know in the early 90s that kind of anger very cynical anger tearing apart everybody and he starts off and he's talking about how he's sick and tired of these liberal environmentalists these white bourgeois liberals complaining about save the earth and you hear people in the audience cheering that on like this is great he's going to take those liberals down a peg then as the piece progresses you realize that what he's critiquing in, in the top of it is, I think, the style with which he was objecting to self-righteousness. But what he's really getting at in the piece, which is revealed in the second half of it, is that those people are exactly right. We are destroying the planet. Or the, the line is, the planet is fine, the people are fucked. The planet's not going anywhere. We are. He is absolutely acknowledging our destruction of our habitat and that it is going to destroy us. And you hear the audience kind of shift, and you can tell that it's like different sections of the audience that are now, you know, he's undercutting it. He's taking those people who are, and yes, take down those liberals. And then he's saying, but they're correct, that their larger message, and maybe I don't like the style of it. And I think there's certainly some comedic hyperbole there. I don't think he truly believed that anybody who was an environmentalist was some self-righteous bourgeois whatever. Because if you go back to clips of him in part one in the early 70s, he's talking about the environmental emergency. And he's talking about how we need to take care of the planet. I think that those were always his values because he has plenty more material as his work went on where he talks about how we are destroying our habitat and that we are not respecting the planet enough and it's going to be our downfall. So... I like the conflict there that he creates within the audience. I like that he subverts expectations. And also, as maybe one of those bourgeois liberals that he's poking fun at, I have a sense of humor, you know? So, like, I get it. Yeah, people are annoying. Like, you know, with my tote bag and my reusable water, you know? Eh, you know, he got a lot of comedy out of poking fun at our sort of surface foibles. But in that Planet is Fun, People are Fucked piece... What he ultimately lands on is we are screwing up everything. We are destroying our home and it's our fault. You know, so I love the complexity of that piece. Near the end, you have a multi-minute montage of Carlin speaking. Americans seems to be the focus. This is a tour de force. You cover war, consumerism, just generally not treating each other well. This is where you break down the, the kind of chronological approach and show Carlin from different eras speaking in different pieces. And you show what's going on in the world again. The protests after the police killing of George Floyd, for example. Would note that you and, and Judd Apatow are nominated for an Emmy. Your visual and sound editors were also nominated as well as for sound mixing. And you can see why in this particular piece. This is just wonderful. It was very hard to craft. It took us a long time. We probably spent more time on this one particular sequence than on any other individual sequence because we knew that it was a moment where we were stepping outside a little bit of just George and it was a little bit more us. And what are we comfortable putting out into the world? What are we comfortable saying that we believe Carlin would have stood by and that we also stand by. If you just go on Twitter and you search George Carlin, there are just countless people saying all kinds of different things, using memes of quotes that he never said, people co-opting him from every conceivable 
political persuasion, people take Carlin's words and apply them and use them to make their point. In fact, just recently, I saw somebody, the Planet is Fine piece that we were talking about before, somebody posted the first half of that saying like, see, he hated environmentalists. And it was like, you got to watch the rest of it because it goes to a very different place. So there's this history of that happening with Carlin since his death. And we knew that we had the power to make it feel as though he could stand by anything we wanted him to say. But we were just very careful to make sure that we felt that ultimately what that sequence was saying were ideas that George would stand by, but that we would stand by as well. It was a lot of fun working on that and getting it right, but it was also very nerve wracking because it was like, well, you know, it's such a volatile time. And not that people's behaviors and thinking is deeply affected by seeing one documentary about a comedian. We feel a strong responsibility about what we put out into the world. And I think it really works because it's obviously of his time, but it also feels like it's speaking to our time. It feels like it's outside time as well as being relevant at the same time. This is uh, his strength. And it's one of the ways of talking about his legacy. John Stewart notes comedy is typically ephemeral, just isn't useful. Friend of the pod, Kamau Bell says, you know, comics love Lenny Bruce, but you aren't turning to him to elucidate things that are happening today. And in this realm, you take Carlin's bit on stuff. Your stuff is shit and my shit is stuff. And you have Jerry Seinfeld and John Stewart speak to it. And these are two of the obviously inheritors of Carlin's legacy. Seinfeld in terms of focus on language and observational comedy. Stewart, obviously, on the political side. And it's really interesting because Stewart, for example, talks about empathy, how there's really a sense of lack of empathy in this. And he's pointing out, you know, it seems lighthearted and superficial, but it's getting at this very deep thing that we value what we want and disvalue what other people want. In that particular moment, that place for my stuff bit is something that in 2022, it sounds almost a little bit hacky. Comedy does evolve. Styles of comedy evolve. And what was funny one day, a couple of years later, becomes stock because people have been so influenced by it that it, the new version becomes something totally different. And honestly, like, you know, before doing those interviews with those guys and other people who spoke about that particular bit, Place for My Stuff wasn't really something that I thought of as being especially profound, but it is. And it speaks to, I think, a recurring theme in Carlin's work is that we don't do enough as a species to take care of one another that we're self-centered. It's a similar sentiment, the place for my stuff bit. It's almost his piece about driving, something like it, I'm going to mangle it, but anybody driving slower than you is an idiot and anybody driving faster is a maniac. Everything that we see is relative to our own experience and we need to get out of that a little bit more and have empathy and see things from other people's perspectives. My stuff is stuff, your stuff is shit. That inherent value of his, we have a species have made huge mistakes by focusing on competition over cooperation and putting profit over people. That to me is the core of Carlin's values. And it's consistent throughout his whole work and his life. And he talks about that same idea in a whole lot of different ways. But ultimately, I think it boils down to that, that he believed that as a species, we were not doing a good enough job of taking care of one another and taking care of our world. Michael, thank you for being here today. This is a great documentary. You show us the Carlin we know and make it more complex, but you also you reveal this Carlin of the early 60s that I didn't know anything about. I'm sure many others don't. And then you reclaim the Carlin of the 80s and 90s, who I think a lot of us felt got a little dark and distant. And you do a great job of showing how that's a continuation and evolution of his earlier thinking and feeling. 
Oh, thanks so much, man. It was such an honor when you get to work on something like this and you go into it knowing like you, you get to be part of making the George Carlin documentary. On the one hand, as a documentary filmmaker, it's, you know, manna from heaven. Oh my gosh, I get to actually be part of telling this great story of this incredibly rich character and this incredibly rich life. Many filmmakers would give their right arm to have the opportunity to take a crack at it. And at the same time, that knowledge puts so much pressure on you that you just cannot screw this up. It can't just be fine. It needs to be really great. So we really worked very hard to try and approach it being as great as we were able to do it. Yeah, you could feel your love for him as well. Thank you so much again. really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. What was your favorite clip or piece of archival material? Oh, there's so many. I mean, I love those old ones. The TV commercial he did for like a regional airline, it just seems so incongruous with the Carlin that we know later. And I, you know, I, I love that early stuff where he's talking about, you know, the John Birch Society and the KKK. You see the seeds of this more rebellious counterculture guy, but before it was okay for him to do that, he couldn't have the mainstream success that he wanted while doing that stuff. And so he kind of abandons it for a while and then he kind of comes back. I really like what you prefaced Colbert's analysis of Carlin as the Beatles with, I think it's Mike Douglas. He's on Mike Douglas and John and Yoker are there. Right after Carlin has made his transformation, which is right after the Beatles have broken up. Wow. So these three iconic performers who are just part of the fabric of our culture and they're there at this moment where they're like, I'm trying something new. It humanizes all of them in a beautiful way, I think. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary you've seen that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? I saw a film last year called The Velvet Queen that I thought was really just beautiful. Just gorgeously executed, very simple concept, but deeply profound and funny and really loved it. 